Please remain standing and pray with me. Lord Jesus, you have told us that apart from you, we can do nothing. And that certainly applies to preaching the word of God. Lord, please fill this jar of clay with the precious treasure of the gospel. Lord, apart from you, I can do nothing. Lord, fill this congregation with your Holy Spirit so that we would be supernaturally empowered to receive the truth of the gospel. Lord, because apart from you, we can do nothing. Lord, we lean on you this morning. We trust you for your providence. We trust you for your goodness. And we trust you to bring the word of God alive in this place this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. that passage of scripture from 1 John. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. I can't think of a more critical scripture for the church in the United States to hear in the aftermath of this past week than the passage that we just heard from 1 John. Following the death of Freddie Gray while in police custody, we have a city in flames and a media that is monomaniacally fascinated with violence and mayhem while ignoring peaceful protest. And just 35 miles away from Baltimore, the Supreme Court heard arguments this week for a fundamental redefinition of marriage to a form that has never been acknowledged in any place in literally 6,000 years of recorded human history. And as a corrective and as an encouragement, brothers and sisters, I am convinced that we need to hear the love chapter from 1 John as it has direct implications for both of the issues that captured the attention of our nation this past week. As Baltimore sweeps up the glass and the rubble and as the Supreme Court seems poised to redefine marriage so that it has no mooring or reference to traditional biblical understandings, we need to hear that short and pithy and really earth-shaking phrase, God is love. We need to hear that again. But unfortunately, the biblical truth that God is love is frequently grossly misunderstood, just like that other verse of Scripture that our post-Christian culture has latched on to, the one other verse that's known in our culture, and that is, judge not, that ye be not judged. Let, let me give you an example of how that is so grossly misunderstood. Let me give you an example about what I mean by that. This is a story that is, is true, but it's synthesized from actual events that I have uh, encountered as a pastor and that my other minister friends have related to me. And so let me just give you this hypothetical uh, story, but it's actually based in fact. One evening, the pastor gets a call from Bob, who is a friend in the congregation. And Bob, uh, the pastor knows, has had a difficult time in his marriage. And Bob says he needs to come over and share something with the minister. So the pastor offers to meet him in the study. And Bob arrives. And after some small talk, this is what Bob says. Pastor, I wanted you to know that I've left my wife. 
and I've moved in with Carol because Carol was Carol was my high school sweetheart, and we re, re, we reconnected again after all these years on the Facebook. And we never intended it to come to this. You know, she's active in her local church, too. It turned out that we had so much in common and that we really are soulmates. Uh, we, we started seeing each other, and right away, we just knew that we were meant for each other. And we prayed about being together. And then I realized that God would bless this new relationship because I have experienced a love and a togetherness that I never knew with my wife. Pastor, I'm convinced that God is blessing our love because the Bible says God is love. Another iteration of this is who are we to judge this particular relationship as being wrong? These two people genuinely love each other. And if God is love, surely he supports this relationship. Now, what's logically uh, wrong with that kind of thinking? I mean, what's, what's the problem with that? Well, here's the problem. When, when we say things like this, we are not, listen, we are not actually saying that God is love. Oh, this is so important. We're not saying that God is love. We are saying that love is God. And what does that mean? Well, it means that we are using, listen, we're using a particular human attraction or a feeling or as a relationship as our point of departure, our starting point, our point of reference. That human attraction or feeling or relationship, that subjective inner emotional experience is then lifted up as being the definition of love. I know what love is. I'm experiencing this. This is what love is. When we take that personal subjective experience of what we call love, when we do it that way, and then we use it to define God, we're not saying God is love. We're saying love, our love is what God is like. I know what love is, and this is it. And if this is love, then I know what God is really like. And God really is like this. And when we've done that, what we've done is we've created an imaginary God in the image of our own sentimentality. We create an imaginary God in the image of our own sentimentality. And it's an idol. And that is exactly the opposite of what is happening in this passage in 1 John. John says that God is love. So that means, listen, in its purest, ultimate reality, love, oh, oh brothers and sisters, listen, love is a person. Love is a person. It is not an emotion. It is not an attraction. It is not sentimentality. Love is not an abstract philosophical concept. It is not my subjective experience or my personal imagination. No, it is an objective reality because love is a person. God is love. And if we are to know what love truly is and then act on that knowledge, then we have to know the person who is love. And so 1 John 4, 8 and 9 says, Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. We love because he first loved us. 
That passage is so critical for us to know what love is. You see, in that passage, the scripture tells us this, that God's love initiates. Listen, God's love initiates. God is not waiting around in heaven for us to notice him and to love him back. God doesn't love us in return for our good behavior. Thanks be to God. No, God initiates the relationship. God loved you first. God loved you first. You know, um, we've got a little bitty baby bean this morning here. Evelyn Rose, her first day at church with her mom and dad. And then Dana and Keith have, have, a, have a, as I told you last week, uh, Dana gave birth to a toddler. And... Uh, <laughs> Luke Samuel, and, and he's at home with his mama. Uh, she's trying to find a, a car seat that will fit a 55-pound <laughs> child that they can bring into church. But what these parents have just experienced is what, if you've ever been a parent, and this is, uh, or maybe even just an aunt or uncle or a friend even, but I remember as, as be, being in their shoes with my little girls, Oh, and oh, wait, wait a second. There's a granddaughter right there, too. It only gets worse when you have grandchildren. Grandchildren are grandparent crack. <laughs> so, and I remember when I held those little girls in my arms, uh, that the, this brand new human being in the world, that I was overwhelmed at the very core of my being, with a love I could not contain. They didn't know that I existed when they came into the world. They didn't know they existed when they came into the world. And yet, and they'd done nothing except create a considerable amount of discomfort for everyone around. <laughs> they had done nothing, and yet... My heart was bursting with love for those children. That's the way God loves you. Even when you didn't know he existed, even when you didn't know you existed, and when you had really done nothing except cause considerable discomfort for those around you, God is bursting with a, with, a, with a love for you that is so great, the universe cannot contain it. You think about that. If we realize that, that will change everything. That's love as defined by God. But God is more than just initiating this love says this in 1 John 4.10, And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. You see, brothers and sisters, what the scripture is telling us there is love is by definition incarnational. It's not merely a kindly attitude or a pleasant disposition. It is revealed in that a person showed up among us in this world. God put on flesh and blood and came among us. Presence and touch 
and embrace. Oh my goodness, think about the, the, think about the leper where the scripture says Jesus reached out his hand and touched him. You don't do that with lepers. Only love incarnate does that. We love with our bodies. That's Jesus washing his disciples' feet. That's Jesus, the propitiation for our sins on the cross. Love is incarnational. God loved us, furthermore, when we did not love him. In fact, when we were his enemies, when we were God's enemies, he loved us. Romans 5, 6, and 8. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in, in this, and in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And that kind of love always invites self-sacrifice. God showed his love for us miserable offenders by offering himself up as a sacrifice for our sin. God was willing to suffer humiliation and pain in order to reconcile us back to himself. And really, that's Luke 15. That's the prodigal son story, isn't it? And that kind of love is indeed why, listen, um, when... It finally was clear that God loved me with a love that the universe could not contain. That is what broke my heart and made me repent. Not fear, not fear of God's wrath, not guilt or shame over my sin, but it was being confronted with the love of God. Yesterday at the foundation's Life Group Retreat, we watched a beautiful documentary, and I want, I want to encourage you all to watch it. It's available uh, for free on the Internet. It's 63 minutes long. It's produced actually by the Roman Catholic Church. But it's a beautiful film about three gay Christians who were far away from Jesus and his church and how each one of them came back to Christ. I love this film because it treated each of these individuals with, in with immense respect. It treated their relationships with respect, and it took them seriously. They have, each of these individuals have chosen to take up the cross of chastity out of their love for Jesus. But brothers and sisters, in every one of their cases, God brought them back not through guilt, not because somebody with a sign was haranguing them, but because they each one had an immediate and present sense of his love and grace. One woman, Rylene, I remember uh, uh, her journey back to the Lord Jesus and uh, her being touched with God's grace and love. And, and one uh, Sunday morning, she showed up in church. And when it came time for Holy Communion, um, she said she looked up at, hey, Oliver. <laughs> It's all right, brother. You can cry after this. It's really touching. <laughs> it says, uh, she, she, she says she looked, she looked at, the, at the altar being set for the Lord's Supper, 
And, uh, and she, said, she said, I knew I was not in a place with the Lord where I could receive the Eucharist. But she said, I have never wanted anything else. I have never longed for anything else so much in my life as I longed for the body and blood of Christ that day. Because I knew he loved me. We have folks on the same journey among us every Sunday. And without exception, they talk about Jesus' love as the transforming power in their lives. So what does genuine love look like? Well, ultimately, it looks like the cross. It looks like self-giving. We love those who do not love us. That's what love looks like. That's what the cross is. We love those who are, in fact, our enemies, And it's happening right now in Baltimore. It's just not making the headlines. Trillian Newbell writes in the Washington Post this week, Hidden under the news of destruction and vitriol are also stories of quiet faithfulness. We may not see the stories and photos of people cleaning up, caring for one another, and praying together. And when we do see it, we are reminded that many in Baltimore love, care, and work For the image of God displayed in humanity. It's happening. It's self-giving love. I love this picture. I don't know if you can see this. uh, And I hope that y'all saw it make the rounds this week. I love this picture. It went viral this week. It's a picture of a a young African-American boy handing water out to the policemen lined up with their shields and their weapons. And I think this guy right behind him is smiling now. It was posted by Bishop uh, Cromarty of Prophetic Deliverance Ministries. And brothers and sisters, that picture is what the love of God looks like. This kind of love, cross-shaped love, willingly embraces the inconvenience of suffering for others. Um, a while ago, I read Richard, Pastor Richard Wormbrand's account of an event in the Romanian prison of Tirgul Ochna in 1951. You may not know this story. I hope you'll go and read it. I think it's uh, in Tortured for Christ. Pastor Wormbrand um, was in prison and tortured many times by the communists in Romania. And he talks about uh, this back during the, the old um, communist era. He tells about... Orthodox abbot uh, Gerasim Iskew, with whom he was confined in prison. And I just want to read this to you. He said, "At, At my right hand was a priest by the name of Iskew. He was abbot of a monastery. This man, perhaps in his 40s, had been so tortured he was near to death, but his face was serene. He spoke about his hope of heaven, about his love of Christ, about his faith. He radiated joy. On my left side was the communist torturer who had tortured this priest almost to death. He had been arrested by his own comrades. Don't believe the newspapers when they say that the communists only hate Christians or Jews. It's not true. They simply hate. They hate everybody. They hate Jews. They hate Christians. They hate anti-Semites. They hate anti-Christians. They hate everybody. One communist hates the other communist. They quarrel among themselves, and when they quarrel one communist with another, they put, each, uh, put the other one in jail and torture him just like a Christian, and they beat him. 
And so it happened that the communist torturer who had tortured this priest nearly to death had been tortured nearly to death by his own comrades. And he was dying near me. His soul was in agony. During the night, he would awaken me saying, Pastor, please pray for me. I can't die. I have committed such terrible crimes. Then I saw a miracle. I saw the agonized priest, Iskew, calling two other prisoners. And leaning on their shoulders, slowly, slowly, he walked past my bed, sat on the bedside of his murderer, and caressed his head. I will never forget this gesture. I watched a murdered man caressing his murderer. That is love. He found a caress for him. The priest said to the man, you are young. You did not know what you were doing. I love you with all my heart. But he did not just say the words, You can say love, and it's just a four-letter word. He really loved. I love you with all my heart. And then he went on. If I, I who am a sinner, can love you so much, imagine Christ, who is love incarnate, how much he loves you. And all the Christians whom you tortured know that they forgive you. They love you, and Christ loves you. He wishes you to be saved much more than you wish to be saved. You wonder if your sins can be forgiven. He wishes to forgive your sins more than you wish your sins to be forgiven. He desires for you to be with him in heaven much more than you wish to be in heaven with him. He is love. You need only turn to him and repent. In this prison cell, in which there was no possibility of privacy, I overheard the confession of the murderer to the murdered. Life is more thrilling than any novel. No novelist could have ever written such a thing. The murdered, near to death, received the confession of the murderer. The murderer gave, the murdered gave absolution to the murderer. They prayed together, embraced each other, And the priest went back to his bed, and both men died that night. It was Christmas Eve. But it was not a Christmas Eve in which we simply remembered that 2,000 years ago Jesus was born in Bethlehem. It was a Christmas Eve during which Jesus was born in the heart of a communist murderer. These things which I have seen... These are things which I have seen with my own eyes. Beloved, Abbot Iskew initiated this act of love and reconciliation. He was carried to the side of his murderer, caressed his head, heard his confession, and it is recorded elsewhere that he served him the Holy Eucharist. And that brings to mind what Clement of Alexandria said. He said, martyrdom is fullness, not because it finishes a human life, but because it brings love to its fullest point. This sacrament, 
that we come to this morning, this body and blood of Christ, is Jesus' caress for each one of us who caused his death. At this table, Jesus said, says, you didn't know what you were doing. I love you with all my heart. And in turn, empowered here by God's grace, we can go into the world. We can go to Baltimore. We can go to the Supreme Court steps and offer them the caress of God's love. We can go to our workplace or our school and we can embody God's love. And we can be the one who says, you didn't know what you were doing. I love you with all my heart. Brothers and sisters, oh my goodness. Never in my lifetime has this world needed that love more than today. And if that's not where your heart is this morning, let Jesus caress you at his table and pour his love into your heart. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.